Welcome to our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Miranda Cokes and I'm the Women's Director here at Rolling Hills. It's week six of our series, Refine, where we have been diving into the seven deadly sins and discovering how we can fight those sins with truth. Today, the sin we're zeroing in on is envy, or that feeling of discontentment or resentment caused by someone else's possessions, qualities, life situation, the list goes on. God doesn't want us to live in this place of envy. He's given us life to the full found in Him, and we can fight envy with gratitude and contentment found in Christ alone. It's time we started fighting, so join us as we learn how to do that today. We're so glad you're here. You know, one of the um, most natural things that you and I tend to do in life, and I don't think that's right, but one of the most natural things that we tend to do is we compare ourselves to other people. Maybe you're sitting in this room and you're thinking to yourself, wow, the lady sitting next to me sings really, really great, and I'm not as good as her, or, you know, or their car is really nice and not as nice as mine. We don't have to consciously think about it, do we? It's just second nature for us to kind of get caught in what I like to call the comparison trap, where we're always comparing ourselves to everyone else. And we've all experienced it, and I'm sure there are many examples that you could come up with. And so maybe you've had that moment where you're invited to someone's house and you go to a friend's house. And one of the first things you notice is how nice their house is compared to yours. And you think to yourself, wow, they have a great place and our place isn't so great. Or you're meeting someone for lunch and they pull up in a nicer car than you drive. And you're a little bit embarrassed because you thought to yourself, I should have parked in the back of the restaurant instead of up here in the front because I'm kind of evaluating myself and judging myself against that. Or you see what another mom is able to do on the hundredth day of school for dressing like an old person compared to what you were able to do. You know, when you were just lucky to find some baby powder to put in your kid's hair, you know, so they had gray hair. And then you see this other mom that's able to do full regalia, you know, the kids with a walker and everything. And you're like, who has time for that? And you begin comparing yourself. Or you watch how your son plays baseball and you compare his abilities as an eight-year-old or as a 14-year-old to everybody else on the field and comparing yourself to all the other dads of how well their sons play baseball or who has more followers or who has better spring break travel plans. You know, you're headed to Disney for what seems to be your monthly trip to Disney, you know, and we're going to grandma's house, you know, in Alabama, and you just think, wow, I wish I had that kind of life. Your golf game is better. Your salary is higher. Your 401k is stronger and so on and so forth. It's comparison. And if we're not careful, at the heart of comparison is rarely this desire to celebrate how awesome you are, right? I mean, we rarely compare ourselves to anybody else so that we can celebrate just how great he is or how great she is. At the heart of comparison, many times is this kind of truly carnal desire that I'm evaluating myself against you and I want what you have. I yearn to be where you are. I look at you and think, you know what, my life would be better if I was like them or if I looked like them. And then if left unchecked, what happens? Comparison most often leads to jealousy and it most often leads to envy, which is where we're going to be camping out today. Because if we're not really careful, this kind of slide happens in our life to where we begin to notice how everybody else's life is different than ours. And then we begin to judge ourselves and evaluate ourselves against everybody else's highlight reel. And you begin comparing yourself and finding value in, am I as good as them or whatever the case might be. Now, jealousy and envy are a sin. It's a, it's a sin that we've been talking about throughout this series called Refine, where we've been looking at some of these sins that we struggle with and looking at how does God refine that? What does God seek to do in my life if we refine that sin? And jealousy and envy are words that I have to spend very little time defining for you because you've experienced it. You know that feeling of realizing that emotion connected to someone has something that I don't have 
or someone wins an award that I didn't win. And just because it's natural, just because it's second nature, just because it's kind of this innately, you know, desire that we have, this sinful desire that we have, doesn't mean that you and I just kind of throw up our hands and say, I guess there's nothing we can do about it. Because if that's our course of action, we could literally do that for every sin in our life and just simply say, well, that's just kind of my nature. And so therefore, I can't be any better. I can't do anything different. But in fact, God says, I want to show you a better way. I want to show you a better way how to refine these things to turn them into something that is actually God-honoring. And so what we're talking about today is not living a life of jealousy and envy, but we're talking about refining that to live a life of contentment. How do I live a life of contentment opposed to a life of envy? So why is all of this a big deal? Why should I care? Why is it really, does, it, does it really matter? Well, you have to look no further than a verse of Scripture that I've referenced a couple of times in this series already. And so if you want to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, you're going to see it up here on the screen as well. You can hop on that mobile device. But 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4 is this amazing verse. Listen to what it says. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. So what's in this verse? Inherent in this verse is that one of the clearest teachings in the Bible about the type of life that I'm called to live is that I'm supposed to love. I am commanded to love other people. And so I'm asked time and time again in Scripture to put others before myself, to intentionally take second place, if you will. And so Paul's writing this chapter, this love chapter, if you will, and we've kind of kind of taken this chapter and we've kind of just adopted it as this is kind of what you do at a wedding, you know, and thank God that he gave us a verse that we could quote at weddings or that we could put on grandma's 50th anniversary plaque. You know, I mean, it's like that's, that's, that must mean what this verse is about. But in reality, Paul was writing this to a church that was in the midst of some contention. And do you want to take a guess as to what they were fighting over? Do you want to take a guess as to kind of what the culture of the Corinth church was? You guessed it, comparison. They were stuck in a comparison trap. You had this one group saying, I have this gift and you don't have this gift. I can speak in tongues and you can't speak in tongues. I have a gift of teaching and you don't have a gift of teaching. I have more faith than you have. And so Paul kind of proverbially drops the mic and says, compare yourself all you want. But if you don't have love, your life is literally a clanging symbol. If love is not the thing that you're known by, then your life is literally a clanging symbol. And so he says, love is not envious. Love and jealousy, love and envy, they don't exist on the same playing field, meaning that I can't love people if I'm jealous of them. And so the big idea for the day, the main takeaway, the meat and potatoes, if you will, simply put, is that love doesn't envy. And as I grow in my love, envy and jealousy in comparison should subside. But if I grow in comparison and envy and jealousy, then I should never be surprised when my love tends to go down. So the goal for today is to help us navigate through these truths to see that God has a better way for us as we seek to refine these things and replace them with contentment. So let me ask you a question. It's a very important question that's kind of a baseline. And we've got to grapple with this question before we go any further. And it's simply put, you see it up here on the screen. What has envy added to your life? Think about it. What has jealousy added to your life? What has being jealous of another person actually brought that's been good to you? What relationship do you currently have that is stronger because of jealousy? What, whose heart is in a better place today or whose mental state is healthier today because you have increased in envy of what someone else has? If you can honestly say that jealousy has brought you more positivity, more peace, more overall health, more life, more freedom, you know, clearer thoughts, wiser choices. If you can honestly say that, then I give you full permission to kind of stick around after the service and share your story with me. And I promise to eliminate this point from the 11 o'clock service. 
However, I don't think you're going to catch me up. You know why? Because Solomon already addressed it. This answer, the answer to that question, what has envy added to your life, has already been answered in Scripture. Go to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4. I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is Solomon saying? He's saying when you're envious of other people, it's meaningless. It's literally like chasing after the wind. It's kind of like if you go to the beach and you have that moment where your bag falls over or you pull a book out of your backpack and there's a piece of paper that comes out with it and there's a big gust of wind, you know, because most of most of beaches usually pretty windy and you see the paper go and you're like, do I chase it? Because I just littered and I don't want to get fined for littering, but it's gone. Like you can't find it. And it's this poignant visual illustration of what Paul says, or what Solomon says happens in our life when we tend to live a life of envy and a life of jealousy. It's literally like chasing after the wind. It's a moving target. I'm never going to catch up. I'm never going to really be able to find that fulfillment that I am looking for because envy always moves. Why? We get jealous of what other people have, right? But what's the problem? If we get what other people have, what does the next door neighbor get? Something even nicer. And I'm envious of what you have, and so I pursue that, and I go after that, and I find some very momentary happiness. And then I realize there was a new model of the truck that came out, and now I want that. It's this ongoing, moving target. So as you see here on your notes, envy does produce a lot of things in life. Peace is just not one of them. (laughs) So what does envy add to your life? It adds a lot to your life, actually, just not peace. Envy and jealousy brings a lot to you. Peace is not one of the things that it brings. I love this verse in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30, it gives you one of the clearest visual pictures of why this matters. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. It's kind of a this or that. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. And it's as if the writer of Proverbs is saying, it's kind of your choice. Do you want a full, rich life or do you want a rotten life? Do you want your life to be filled with peace or do you want your life to be filled with rottenness, so to speak? Because see, from a physical, from a mental perspective, envy affects our minds. It affects our bodies. There's some amazing research out there about how jealousy, you know, it kind of, it affects us mentally and it causes us to have more anxiety and causes us to sometimes have more depression. As a result, what research has found is sometimes people who are really, really jealous end up having fewer friends and fewer people around them to help them out in times of need. When envious people receive help, they tend to be resentful for it because they don't like that that was necessary in the first place. And the story goes on and on. It has huge ramifications for your personal health and for your relationships. And maybe you know those people, or maybe you are that person where your life is just kind of marked by unpleasantness. You don't have a lot of relationships, and you're personally unhappy because envy has stolen. It's taken your joy. It's robbed you. That jealousy has robbed you of the joy that you so desperately want. My friend Jacob Scrimshire, who also happens to be our Rolling Hills discipleship pastor, says this amazing quote about envy, and I want to quote him today. He says, and I quote, Envy is the host of a party with all sorts of shady characters. And I love that visual. Envy is the host of a party with all sorts of shady characters. It's a party with really terrible guests that got invited. And those guests are guests like frustration, irritated, being negative, being bitter, nothing really ever pleases me, judgmental, i.e. the rotting of your bones. 
All of these things that erode our life, opposed to that bring peace to our life, as Proverbs 14, 30 tells us. So if we want to refine that, then we say, I don't want to live a life that's rotten. I don't want to live a life that has rotten bones, but I want to live this life of peace. So how do I do that? How do I kind of foster and refine that heart of peace, if you will? I want to give you three things. Three things that kind of help in this development of a heart of peace. The first of which is that the heart is guarded then by Christ. A heart guarded by Christ. Proverbs 4, 23 says, above all else, guard your heart. For everything that you do flows from it. Above all else, guard your heart. My heart has to be guarded because everything flows from it. What does a guard do? A guard protects. What does a security guard do? A security guard is there for your protection. A gate protects you from something. And so what the scripture says is to be wise about who you give your heart to. Be wise about where you let your emotions go. Be wise when you allow the world to shape the trajectory of your heart opposed to Jesus Christ shaping the trajectory of your heart. Because what does Jesus want? Jesus wants all of our hearts. He wants to be Lord of our life. He wants to be our all in all, so to speak. And so if I start having those thoughts of jealousy or those thoughts of comparison or those thoughts of bitterness, so to speak, or those thoughts of envy, perhaps I would have the courage to say, God, I need to stop that right now because what I'm thinking does not lead to a good place. So please guard my heart because I know it's the wellspring of my life. Everything I do flows from it. Protect my emotions. Protect me from these feelings of jealousy. Protect me from these feelings of comparison. And so that's one of the first steps if we want to have that heart of peace. Secondly, we have to trust in God's sovereignty. We have to trust in God's sovereignty, which is a really fancy way of saying that God's in charge of everything. God controls everything. Colossians 1.17 says that he is before all things. This is in reference to Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What does that mean? It means that your current situation is not lost on God. It means wherever you are, if you're in a season of life right now that you would say, hey, this is as good as life has ever been, or if you're in a season of life where you say, this is about as terrible as life has ever been, or somewhere in the middle, God's holding it together. There is not an aspect of your life that is a surprise or came as a shock to God. That current situation, he is in it. He's before it, he's behind it, and he's encircling you in that moment. He's the one holding the world together. He's the one holding your life together. And it might seem completely out of control. You might be thinking, God has forgotten me. He hasn't. And so my hope and my prayer is that you would say, you know what, I want to trust in his plan. I want to trust in him in the midst of these challenges because why does this matter? When I'm able to trust in his sovereignty, then I'm able to not keep my eyes diverting from the left to the right and wanting what everybody else has, but I'm able to realize he's got me exactly where he wants me. I say this quotation or I say this statement pretty much every Sunday. I think in my 15 years of ministry, there's been like two Sundays I didn't say it, and those were really terrible Sundays. So um, I say it almost every week. I think I've already said it once today. And the fact that I say it every week means you're probably just starting to get it. But it is not by accident that you are here. It's really not. It's not by accident that you're here. There was not some, you know, cosmos that just bumped together and that's what brought you here today. No, God has you here. In fact, God brought all of you from California here for a reason. <laughs> you know, from all of y'all that just decided Tennessee's where you want to be, he was the one that did that. And there may have been some moments where you think to yourself, how did this happen? How did we end up here? Why am I here? As Rosaria Butterfield says, God did not get your address wrong. God didn't get your address wrong. Your previous address was where God wanted you. Your current address is where God wanted you. He doesn't get these details wrong. 
And so he has you where he wants you. So what does that heart of peace do? That heart of peace says, I want to guard my heart in Christ Jesus. I want to trust in his sovereignty because I think it's going to matter in the long run for my ability to not be kind of falling prey to this sin of envy and jealousy. And then lastly, I want to remain faithful. I want to just simply remain faithful. Exodus 14, 13 and 14. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord your God will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again, and the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. You need only to be still. And some of you are reading this verse and you're thinking, that is really sweet. God says he's fighting my battle. All I need to do is be still, take a deep breath, just relax it. But the reality is, if you read what's actually happening in Exodus chapter 13, you realize, 14, you'll realize just how significant this is. Because what has happened is God's chosen people, the Israelites, they have fled oppression in Egypt. And they are now out in the wilderness. And Pharaoh and his vicious army are literally barreling down on the Israelites in this moment. And they see the army coming to them. And they look at Moses, their leader, and they say, Were there not enough graves in Egypt for us to die that you brought us out here in the wilderness to die? And there's an army coming towards them. And Moses says, the Lord fights for you. All you need to do is be still. What does that mean? It means stop and remain faithful. Stay faithful. Bloom where you're planted, so to speak, because the Lord is fighting your battle. You don't have to be held captive by jealousy and envy and a desire to be like everybody else. Now, have that passion. Work hard. Serve with excellence. But above all, seek to remain faithful because here's what I know. And I don't know it because it's original to me. I know it because it's in Scripture. If God has a move for you in the future, he'll make that happen. If God has a career change, you'll know about it. If God has something significant he wants you to step out and do, you don't have to spin your wheels on that. May I suggest for you a second, if you're out there trying to work ahead of God, or maybe you're out there trying to do something and God is just not in it, and you know he's not in it, but you have just been pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and trying to do something that's working ahead of God, may I suggest for a second that you just stop and be still. Give it to God and trust that if he has a different chapter for your life, guess what? He's the author of your life. He'll write it. If he has a new chapter for you, he'll make it abundantly known. Now, I've actually tried to operate under this principle my entire adult life. The premise that if God wants to move me somewhere, he's going to do it. In fact, one of the best pieces of advice that I was given from a mentor years ago was trust that God will open the doors that need to be opened. And if a door needs to be closed, God will close it. And so I just made a commitment to say, you know what, I'm not going to search for it. If God wants to do something, he's going to have to make it abundantly known or open some door or whatever. And so in my adult life, I'm 40 years old for one more week. And uh, in that, um, in my adult life, I've had two what I like to call big boy jobs. Lots of little jobs, but two big boy jobs. This one most recently of 15 years almost, which I love every second of. But neither of those big boy jobs was I ever actually looking for. Now, maybe that's not been your story, and maybe that's not been what happened to you. Maybe your story is a little bit different in that your company closed, or maybe there was some downsizing, or maybe there were some circumstances that forced you out of the company, or maybe you felt a push or a pull by God, and there was something that was stirring, or maybe it was the Holy Spirit that was just saying, step out in faith and trust me that I've got this. Regardless, I believe with everything in me that God in his infinite wisdom will make his plan known to you in the timing that's only ordinated, that is orchestrated by God, and that you and I can trust it. 
that we can trust God's timing. And until he brings those opportunities your way, until he stirs something that can only be described by him, and still, and, until there is that push, until there is that pull, how about we just say, let's remain faithful and trust that God's in the details. Because reality strikes in that sometimes the reasons that we try to kind of push and pull and all those kinds of things, we kind of start from a pretty virtuous place, but it kind of starts to go askew pretty quickly. Because sometimes we don't remain faithful where God wants us because we just want things that are nicer. And we want more money, or we want a bigger house, or we want a new car, or whatever the case might be. And I've seen this a lot with, with, with us men in that. And I know that it, we're not the only ones that, that struggle with this, but I've seen it a lot um, with... Uh, with us guys, that particularly sometimes we seek out new careers or we seek out new promotions or we seek out new things, um, and, and we do so knowing full well that it's going to really be a struggle to then maintain the things in our life that are actually the most important. I mean, I've had so many men tell me in my ministry career that, you know, they, they took a new job and it's going to keep them on the road for, you know, X number of weeks a year, but they did that in order so that they could buy nicer things for their family. And my question has always been, what does your family need? Do they need a nicer, a nicer beach house for the week, or do they need you? And the answer to that question is you. Now, again, I'm not saying if you're dealing with a promotion right now that you should call the company and say, you know, the pastor said I shouldn't take the promotion. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm saying just a lot more money, just a new position, a lot more power, so to speak. Sometimes we go after these things because they sound really virtuous, but in reality, what we're really going after is I want the things that everybody else has. And I want what he has, or I want what she has. And if that's the case, if it is the latter, if that is, in fact, why you're seeking to navigate into something new right now, I implore you to avoid that like the plague and trust that if God wants to stir that, he's going to do that. I mean, listen to James 3, 13 through 16. God's word's not silent on any of this. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done and the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Are you familiar with the old adage, where there's smoke, there's fire? It's kind of what James is saying. He's saying, where there's envy and selfish ambition, where there's some smoke, guess what the fire is? There's some disorder and evil practices that tend to start stirring up in our life. He connects this up, and so all of a sudden we realize this is really serious stuff. That me just wanting something that somebody else has seemed really harmless, but if I leave that unchecked, then it can slide to this season of life where that envy and jealousy snowballs. And the scriptures say that the harboring of that envy is not wise. In fact, James says it's unspiritual, it can be demonic, it's disorderly, and evil. See, so one of the most common things that, that I see, and maybe you've seen this as well, and it's a result of envy in our life. And it's something that we rarely like to discuss, but something that tends to happen in our life when we're envious and when we're jealous of other people, as you see it here on your notes, is that jealousy kind of makes it virtually impossible to be happy for someone else. Why does that matter? Because you're like, Jason, you kind of sound like you're giving us a really great self-help talk here. So why, why does all this matter? Well, think about the primary commandments that God gave his people. What was the primary commandment that he gave? Love him first and love others second. 
we like to insert ourselves as number one. We like to say, all about me, then maybe about God, and then maybe about others. God didn't even say, God, me, others. He said, God and others. And so jealousy stands in the way of the very thing that God says I am to primarily be about. It makes it virtually impossible to be happy for someone else. And so I want to bring some words to this and shed some light on it. Because if there's a dark area of leadership or if there's a dark area or an evil side of your life, a symptom that we don't like to talk about, one of the wisest things that we can do is shed some light on it because in the midst of darkness, light exposes things. And there's this part of our life that we give voice to that, that all honesty for a lot of us, and I've had seasons in my life where this has certainly been true, it becomes a ceiling for us. It becomes what I like to call the ceiling for growth, the ceiling for next steps, the, ceilings, the ceiling to experience. We kind of keep bumping into the ceiling because we struggle with jealousy. and It's made it virtually impossible to be happy for someone else. Jealousy makes it really difficult to find joy when other people succeed. Because if I'm envious of all the things that you have, there's this really evil side of my life, and it's, it's kind of directed by sin, that doesn't celebrate with you at your success, but it does celebrate a little bit when something doesn't go so well for you. And hearing those words come out of my mouth and seeing at least a few of you nod makes me feel like I'm in somewhat good company, that I'm not alone in this. Those moments when you realize, I don't have to be the best, I just want to be a little bit better than him. And I'm not, it's not nefarious, it's not ill will, it's not this, you know, this, this sense of I want everybody else to fail, but what envy causes us to do is to find a little bit of happiness, and let me add momentary happiness to that. It causes us a little bit of momentary happiness to see somebody else not do so well. So instead of rallying around another person, instead of cheering on another person, if there's a root of jealousy in those relationships, you're going to feel a little bit better about yourself when somebody else doesn't hit the mark. And it's this really kind of dark, evil side of how we live. And I'll be the first to tell you, we're not exempt from that here in our church either. We're not exempt from that in our church. You're not exempt from it in your family. You're not exempt from it in your business. We're not exempt from it here in the church. It's really easy for me to celebrate other churches in our community, just as long as they're a little bit smaller than us, just as long as they're doing a little bit less than we're doing. What's the problem with that then? See, the problem with that organizationally, the problem with that corporately, the problem with that in a church, and of course the problem with that personally is that at the heart you are saying, I want to be the best. I want to be first. I want everything they have. And I promise you, because I've seen it more times than I can count, a jealous attitude will 100% be an obstacle that you keep hitting and you keep bumping into because we tend to only go as far personally and tend to go as far collectively as we're willing to say, I'm truly, joyfully, happy, elated for the amazing things happening in another person's life. Why would we expect God to bring us all of these rich, abundant blessings when we don't see other people as teammates? And we don't see other churches as vital teammates. So instead of harboring that envy and that comparison, let's refine. And let's say, God, what do you seek to do? Let's seek to move to the healthier part of this equation, the healthier alternative, if you will. And that is to simply be content. And I don't think there's any faster way for us to grow in contentment than for us to up our gratitude and up our thankfulness. See, being thankful is the antidote to envy and jealousy. You've seen it in your own life, haven't you? That being thankful, the minute that that envy, the minute that that jealousy starts to surface in your life, if you can find it within you to say, I want to start expressing all the things that I'm grateful for and all the things that I'm thankful for, 
you begin to realize what God is doing in your life, and those things begin to refine. See, if you struggle to be grateful, you see this here on your notes, if you struggle to be grateful, you will struggle to be content, period, unequivocally. Take this to the bank. If you struggle to be grateful, you will struggle to be content. First Timothy 6, 6 through 10. Godliness with content is, contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and into a trap and into many foolish and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. What does 1 Timothy say? It says, godliness with contentment is great gain. It didn't say godliness with the pursuit of almighty dollar is great gain. It was godliness with contentment leads to great gain. And if we're not careful, we can fall into this trap where we start being envious and jealous and comparing everything in our life to everybody else and making that our end goal. But that's not a contentment kind of goal. It's a worldly goal. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, at the root of much of our envy is just a simple It's a simple answer. It's a lack of gratitude. It's a perspective for what has happened. Sure, your 2010 Honda Civic that's paid for is not near as nice as his 2022 F350 with a $900 a month payment. It's not near as nice. Sure, I mean, your paid for Honda Civic gets 35 miles to a gallon, which is really nice today. (laughs) But that truck is so nice. And I want that. Now, if any of you have ordered a new truck, I am not mad at you. So I'm not saying that's bad. I'm not, don't leave the room and just say, this guy doesn't want us to have any nice things. That is not at at all. There is nothing wrong with having nice things. There's nothing wrong with having a home. There's nothing wrong with buying a car. There's nothing wrong with going on a vacation. I'm not saying that. However, I am saying I will never really be content if I'm not thankful for what I already have. And you will not ever fully be content if you don't start from a place of being grateful for what you already have. I don't know who this quotation is original to, um, and so I don't want to take credit for it. So don't tweet and put my name connected to this because I don't know who it's original to, but I love it so much. Someone in your zip code is praying for the very things you're taking for granted. Think about it. There's some things in your life right now that you have just taken for granted. You take for granted that you have a beautiful family. You take for granted that you have a job. You take for granted that you have a car. You take for granted that you have all these things. There's someone in your zip code that's praying for the very things that you and I are undoubtedly taking for granted. So how about we have a perspective shift and we say, God, I'm grateful for what I have. Because when you struggle to be grateful, you always struggle to be content. Maybe you complain about your kids, you know, and I get it, like, It's hard. I get it. Parenting preschoolers is hard. Parenting elementary is hard. I'm not past that, but I assume it's hard past that. Teenagers, hard. Adult children, hard. And it's really quick to just kind of complain and criticize and do all the things, completely ignorant of the fact that there's many people who would love for that to be the stress that they're dealing with because they've been praying for a child and God hasn't brought it into their life yet. And it's just this perspective shift that you realize, if I can just be more grateful... And not start from a place of bitterness and jealousy and envy or anger or whatever case might be, but just simply thanking God for all that he has done. 
Sure, maybe your house is not as nice as her house. But it snowed over the weekend and the snow didn't come in. Maybe my house is not as nice as your house, but a couple weeks ago when it rained like seven days in a row, there wasn't a puddle right in the middle of the kitchen. Now, there was, might have been one in the basement of the crawl space, but there wasn't one right in the middle of the kitchen. So I'm grateful for that. Maybe your business is not as successful as his business, but you were able to pay your mortgage last month and you were able to keep food on your table and you were able to pay your bills, so you're grateful for that. Maybe your husband doesn't have a six-pack of abs. I'm with you guys. I know you. I'm with you. We're in this together. But he works hard every day to provide for your family. And when he gets home, he continues to put you first. And he continues to do whatever it takes to make sure that the needs in your family are met. Maybe you've been looked over for the promotion that you so desperately wanted. But maybe, just maybe, God is protecting you from something that you don't see just yet. Maybe there's something that you've thought, that's what I need, and maybe God is saying, no, I'm protecting you from a side of the story because I see the beautiful tapestry that you don't see. I'm protecting you from something. Maybe other churches have paved driveways that aren't muddy. (laughs) And maybe there's other churches that have auditoriums where they don't hear a baby crying through the wall. But you know what? I'm thankful that God gave us this piece of ground because it's holy. I'm thankful that God gave us this building with all of its smallness because it's a holy place. And I'm grateful that there's a place where people can come and where they can meet Jesus. And I'm grateful for the promise that one day soon there will be a building where you can go to the restrooms inside the building and not have to go to what I'm also grateful for, the nicest luxury restroom trailers I have ever seen in my life. (laughs) But it's easy to start from a place of pointing out all the things that are wrong, when if we shift our perspective, we say, God, you're so good. Sure, life is messy. Sure, people are messy. Sure, they drive me crazy. Sure, not where I want to be financially. Sure, I need more savings. Sure, I wish I looked like that. Sure, fill in the blank, keep going, keep going, keep going. But the reality is until we're thankful for where we are, that contentment will always be elusive. And so how about we just simply camp out in this truth then? Because this is where it really starts. And this is where we close that true contentment is found in Christ alone. That's where the contentment is found. True contentment is found in Christ alone. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I, don't, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any ever circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Philippians 4, 13 is a, undoubtedly one of the most popular verses of Scripture, and we've kind of taken it to mean that you can run the race faster than anybody else. I can do all things, and it's certainly true for that. But in reality, the man who wrote it had been in prison, had been beaten, had experienced affliction, had gone through lean seasons, and had gone through seasons of plenty. And he said, because of Jesus Christ, I can do all of this. I can be unwavering and steady and faithful because of Jesus. It is only Jesus that brings the contentment that you and I so desperately need. But that comparison, that jealousy, that envy, it's debilitating. It's frustrating. 
they lead us to a terrible place, but praise God, he said, I've given you a better way. So let's commit this morning to be refined and to live a life of contentment for his name and for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for meeting us here. Thank you for your presence in this place. God, it's been so good to be together and so good to just listen to your word and to hear it and to hear the truth. And God, I thank you for the Holy Spirit that's here and that seeks to meet us and seeks to guide us and seeks to connect us. So God, if there's something in our life right now that's um, maybe a little bit um, out of sync, that you would give us all that we need to listen to you. I pray that if there's searching in this room for contentment in the wrong places, that you would just help us to take a detour and to turn our eyes to you. And I pray, God, that each and every one of us would truly find peace and joy and that hope in your presence. So thank you, God, for what you've done and for what you're going to continue to do as we seek to just remain faithful to you. And it's in the powerful name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Thanks for listening to our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. If you liked this podcast, subscribe to it or share it with some friends. You can also check out some of our other great podcasts like Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, Rolling Hills Women's As You Go Podcast, and more. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. We're thankful for you.